This is a billionaire's in boxes production. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes with me, your host, Phil Paluccia, the digital business connector, as always. Uh, I am joined today by Kyle Dean Houston. You're getting your full name, sir. Uh, He is the author of Patchwork Junkie and a very impressive speaker and coach, uh, somebody that I've been really excited to introduce you all to. So uh, without further ado, Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Phil. I, uh, I tell you what, you know, we... You and I touched base a couple of weeks ago, and I have been chomping at the bit to get get to this interview because our conversation was so rich with uh, with just stuff that we get to bring out. So I'm excited about this. I'm very excited about this. Me too. No, I think it's going to be great, and I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of lessons for people here. And you know, I guess our show is always expanding new heights and, and exploring new grounds. And I think what's, what's really important about this conversation in particular is our listeners will, will find out more as we go along is that yes, there's the, the underlining kind of what, what we do in business and, and where it's led to and all that kind of stuff. But actually um, it's almost the stuff that came before, isn't it? It's the foundation that all of that stuff is built on. And, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to sharing those stories. In fact, for our listeners, you kind of called me out actually when we were talking and were saying that you know, if you're sharing your story, I should share mine. So I can imagine that this podcast is going to go to some interesting places today. And that's my hope. That's my hope. So, <laughs> um, no, you, you made a good point that it's not really where we're at that matters. It's where we came from that, mm-hmm. that got us to where we're at. And I would say that I think that's true with everybody. I, I have conviction that that's true with everybody, but with me, for sure, it is mm. true. Absolutely. And um, I think typically somebody would introduce themselves right now, but you know what? I I want to kind of let this come out organically because what what I'm dying to tell everybody, well, yeah, I mean, I could sit here and tell them about my business acumen and all those sorts of things, which mm. I will. Let me just jump in there. Uh, my By trade, I am a successful sales guy, successful sales executive, uh, built a really great career outside uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, But I held a deep, dark secret from everybody. And what my real background was 10 years earlier before I built that that career um, was that I faced life in prison a couple times, uh, not just once, but twice. And I did seven years behind bars, which is not the typical route to a... (laughs) No, definitely <laughs> not. Sales career. Um, it should be, but it's not. So I'm I'm saying that tongue in cheek. Yeah, so um, sh- should all senior execs have done a stint in prison? Is that they what should make them? St- they should at least <laughs> understand what it's like to deal with uh, to deal with certain people. Absolutely. <clears throat> but no, no, no. It all helped. It all helped build who I am. It helped uh, create empathy, and it absolutely helped me get to this phase of my life, which, as you talked about. Uh, I'm a speaker and a coach, and I've got a message that I completely feel is my purpose in life. You know, I'm done with worrying about making money. I'm done with worrying about making numbers. I'm done with um, creating wealth for more VCs in Silicon Valley. Well, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm done with that, but that's not what's important. What's important to me is that people understand that there's always hope, that Mm -hmm. people understand just like you, that it doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done the shame and the guilt needs to be released. And that ceiling that people tend to put on themselves because they've made those mistakes needs to go away. It needs to go away because you can literally do whatever you want, especially where I'm from. We didn't mention, I think you can tell from my accent, I'm from the States. 
And um, and we've got lots of opportunity here. I'm, I'm sure it's the same way there all over Europe, right? Where mm-hmm. um, you're not held down by your your mistakes. Uh, you're just held by down by the way you feel about your mistakes. So for sure, by no means a short introduction, but there you have it. No, so, I love it, and you're you're so right. I mean, it's it's so often, if not almost exclusively, um, the fear of what we feel other people will think that holds us back, rather than actually what they will think. Um, you know, I, I think it's very easy to become so focused on yourself that you forget that everybody else is too. Um, they're all focused on their problems, their situations. And, and actually the people who judge, they're probably not the people you should really be that worried about anyway. Well, I will, I'll say this. I think that it's all circumstantial, right? It mm. certainly is circumstantial. Had I come out of prison um, when I was scared to death and walked into you know, some of the VC's offices that I've worked with, some of the firms mm-hmm. that I've worked with and said, Hey, I just got out of prison. I'm on parole. Hey, what do you think, man? We're looking for $18 million. Well, the answer is unequivocally no. So there may be some times where you want to pull back the reins, pick mm. and choose how you release the information. But at some point you need to realize that all of those things that hold you back, if you're ashamed of it, if you feel bad and it hinders your life and becomes an albatross, Mm. um, from fulfillment, then you need to, you need to figure out how you release that. And it doesn't need to be the world like I did. Mm. Um, I felt like the only way for me to ever take my life completely back would be to tell the world and write my book, right? So that there was zero chance I could deny it. There was zero mm. chance I could ever see it was that. out there. That's right. But not everybody needs to do that. That's clever. Um, but they need to tell people. It's the burden of carrying that stuff around as well is very painful. In fact, I've got to be honest, you just made me panic there a minute ago. You were, uh, you said I can tell by your accent. I was thinking, oh no, he's going to ask me to try and pinpoint where his accent's from geographically. Um, Like I know, look, you're from the States. I can tell that much, but don't start asking me about regional dialects. I'm going to be in big trouble. No, I'll I'll tell you what, don't you, as long as it reciprocates and you don't ask me to do the same, but let me make a promise to you. Shoot. Even people from the States get it wrong. They oh, can't really? figure out where I'm from. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a hybrid from the middle. Uh, just you know that what they call the flyover states. I'm from a small town in the middle of America, um, and it's morphed into something that teeters between New York and California. <laughs> so well, you know what that that's that's that kind of really adds to the story, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that you're from you know this this smaller place in 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 middle America is, uh, and then you've you've had both extremes you've had the extremes of uh the the correctional facilities and i'm going to prison and then you've had the other extreme of being in silicon valley dealing with these incredibly successful businesses i mean even just one of those alone from where you're from would have made an interesting story but to to have lived both of them is 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 quite something so for our listeners who haven't yet come across the book i mean that's how we originally connected with over um patchwork junkie which i know really discusses this story you know, you've mentioned about wanting to get that out there to the world. When did you make that conscious decision that that, that was going to be how you were going to do it and that you were going to tell the world this story? Yeah, I know the exact month. It was July of 2017. <clears throat> and I was coming off of a bad partnership. And I, I teamed up with a couple of baseball agents and we were creating a business that had nothing to do. It was outside of uh, Major League Baseball. Excuse me. <clears throat> and 
the relationship wasn't working out any longer. Look, we've all heard those stories a million times, right? But yep. I started to realize I had pulled my wife into this partnership, whether she wanted to or not, because mm-hmm. she felt like it was her duty to go down with the ship. And I realized that literally every every decision I was making, every fear, every um, knee-jerk reaction that was coming out of me was literally about my fear that people were going to find out. It was about my fear of money. It was about all these fears that stemmed from my past. Mm-hmm. And then I started to go a little bit deeper and realized, hey, you know what? Maybe for the last 13 years of my life, every decision I'm making status, who my friends are, where I work, what car I drive, all of that stuff is to overcompensate for this this paralyzing fear that someday people are going to find out. Mm -hmm. And I tell myself, I'm a proud guy. I'm Kyle Houston. And when I say that to myself, that means something. And it usually quickens something inside me. And I'm done with all this. And that day, I decided I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book And through the course of writing this book, I decided, and it wasn't that day, but through the course of writing, I decided I was, I was absolutely not pulling any punches because the book's written for two reasons. One, for me to take back my life, to release all that guilt and shame and find forgiveness, but two, to offer hope to the people that need to hear this message. And if I dilute it, or if I pull back, or I try to make myself look like a hero, mm. then I'm not going to help anybody. I might help a little, but I'm not going to help to the extent that I was meant to help. No. So this is a raw book, man. I promise. Mm. It is. And it, everybody says, you know what I love about it, Kyle? First of all, I, I, I love the fact that you you write it in a way that you put us in there. I can hear you reading it. That's 100% of the people that talk to me say Secondly, I get so sick of memoirs being the excuse for what people did and being something to blame and point the finger at people. And I absolutely did not do that. Mm. So, no, I, uh, Well, look, let, let's jump straight to it then, because by this point, our audience are listening going, what did he do? So <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> what did I do? I, I jaywalked, which no, I'm kidding. No, you didn't. I, uh, I wish that. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So we already know I came from a small town, but when I was in my mid-20s, I had just gone through from, from high school to mid-20s, I was a guy that, because I was young, I thought I was immortal. I thought I could make any mistake I wanted, and I had tons of runway. So I quit. I dropped out of college. I joined the service. I quit the service. I recreationally had done LSD, marijuana, cocaine, crack, you name it, right? I was just mm-hmm. you know, doing all sorts of things. But I ended up becoming a very successful entrepreneur at 24 years old. I had employees and assets in my own house, and I felt like I was on top of the world in my little corner of it. And I got addicted to meth just out of nowhere, right? I went from a recreational user that did it every once in a while around, you know, girls at the bar or whatever you do when you're a kid, the pub. Um, And I instantly was addicted overnight, instantly had this, had met somebody with a bottomless bag and I'll fast track all this. I, she ends up cutting me off after a couple of months of hanging out. Um, and this wasn't for me, it was for her to pull a power move, but I'm a smart enough guy. I figured out how to make meth. And so Mm -hmm. I started to make meth on my own, which is the worst idea in the world, but it was driven by addiction. And the idea was I was going to sustain 
my my addiction because I wasn't going to have to grovel or ask anybody. That's just not my bag, right? So what ends up happening is all of these bikers and junkies and tweakers all decided, hey, this guy can really make good drugs. And everything just comes at me in a short period of time, all the chemicals, all the, and we build this machine where I become one of the biggest meth cooks in Kansas city overnight mm. within two years. And I thought my only way to get out was to die. I, I, you know, I was so addicted. I couldn't quit. I'd broken my mom's heart. I'd, you know, done all the things that you've heard that addicts do. And I start using needles and literally become a junkie. I can't run out of dope. And I think I'm wanting to have an overdose. So I'm just shooting mm. seven or eight times a day. And instead of, you know, what I thought was going to happen, I end up getting arrested and I'm facing 30 years with no parole. And I end up in a cell all by myself for almost a year of my life for 23 hours out of every single day. And I have this crazy spiritual awakening and this connection with God. And the story continues to splinter off, which we can come back to. But what ends up happening is <clears throat> case goes weak. Uh, the police officer had no business pulling me over my a month before I get sentenced. Right. I, I think I'm going to do 30 years. I like I'm preparing myself to never be significant, never contribute, never mm. raise my children, never fall in love. You know, all of those things that we take for granted. And my lawyer comes to me and says, hey, no business pulling you over. Every piece of evidence that they got is insubmissible. You can beat the wow. case. And I thought, well, sounds good, but I want to honor this thing that happened. I want to honor this transformation. I broke the law. Like, I'm culpable. And plus, if we lose the case, I get the 30 years. So what is the prosecuting attorney offering? They said nine. I said, great, I'll take it. Now, hmm. explain this. First time going to prison back then in Missouri, a B felony or below, you do a third of your time. So I thought I was going to do three years. I'm all zinned out and I'm just going to walk out and have my life over again. Yep. I tell my son, get a football. Daddy's coming out. Don't listen to what your mom says, blah, blah, blah. About a month before I get paroled out, the federal government comes in and indicts me for the exact same evidence. Now, people will tell you that you can't be tried, for be tried twice crime. for the same crime. Yeah, I'm going to tell you this is how they do it. The answer is yes, they can. And this is how they do it. The state called it trafficking in the first degree. The okay. feds called it conspiracy to traffic. But they okay. use all the same stuff. And here's the so crazy same thing. evidence, different law. Yeah, but they have yeah. one piece of evidence that the state didn't have, and that is my guilty plea to the state. So there's, you know, I walk in guilty and I'm Ouch. facing life. Anyway, fast track, by the grace of God, I get seven years. I do a total of seven years behind bars, end up doing my time in Miami, which was a, an adventure in itself. I'm literally rubbing elbows with Carlos, uh, sorry, Pablo Escobar's right-hand man, who's Carlos Slater. I mean, it, it, uh, I don't know if you know who Noriega, Manuel Noriega is uh, possibly was, I don't remember. He was in the same prison. Like this was a wow. high profile prison with me, you know, a non-Spanish speaking guy from Missouri right in the middle of all this. But I walk out at the age of 35 and this is where the story gets cool. I'm scared to death. I'm institutionalized. I have no, I, I had no network, no college degree. And I'd never even sent an email. And this is 2005. Mm. 
And so I end up going from a $10 an hour employee at a call center where, you know, I would call somebody up and see if they wanted a two year extension on their plan for a free flip phone. Right. That was, that was my job for the real criminals. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I go from that to a decade later at the top of my game. Um, I put two companies in that 10 years, I put two startup companies in Inc. Magazine's fastest 500. I took one to acquisition um, ended up being a vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company and then pulled out. So mm-hmm. yeah, it got really, really cool. And, and I, you know, I wish that was a short story, but there's so much detail inside that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to take a breath, Phil, and let you, uh, let you dive in and start picking some of that apart though. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot, isn't there? And I think this is, you know, there's, I think there's probably three ways I want to approach this really. Number one is obviously during your during the buildup, I guess, to that kind of led to that. Second, I think, is going to be actually what the, the whole prison experience was like. And then sure. I think finally my my audience would, would be furious if I didn't kind of ask you a bit more detail around, you know, how did you actually do that? How did you go from the guy with no college, college qualification to becoming the guy who, who had all of that success and, and did all those things? You know, was that a because you mentioned about inspiring people, but the thing that's inspirational is when people can see that they can do it too. You know, is Kyle just this amazing being? Would you have been able to do that regardless, do you think? Or did, did those experiences give you the fire and passion to go and do that? Because let's be honest, you were successful at 24, weren't you? you? You already had a successful business. So I guess there's an element of this is in your DNA. Um, <clears throat> I'm certainly interested in making money. Right. And, and let me let me be 100 percent clear. I wasn't making meth because of that interest in making money. That was mm-hmm. never what it was about. And that is my defense mechanism to make sure people knew I wasn't trying to ruin lives at the detriment of my my bank account. Right. Other or than yours. Yeah. Yeah. But um, my interests might be different than other people's, but I don't think it's that much different than your listeners, right? If they're mm-hmm. listening to this show, they're interested in money, they're interested in success, they're interested in deconstructing um, the minds of people that get there. The thing that I had was gasoline on that fire, right? If if the embers were my ambition, mm-hmm. I had real superpowers when I walked out of prison, which were guilt, insecurity, fear, mm-hmm. doubt. But lucky for me, I had all of those things were, which were not going to allow me to ever quit or ever let anybody outwork me or ever, you know, go to sleep before everything's done, that sort of a thing. But I also had this innate belief, which I'm very lucky to have. It's God-given or life-given or whatever, that I can do anything that I set my mind to. So what I tell everybody that will listen is you can literally have low self-worth and high self-confidence simultaneously inside the same brain, simultaneously inside the same ball of yarn that's you know driving you nuts. You can have that, and I did. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was the recipe for success. It's, it's so. funny you should mention that because I'm nodding away frantically, which obviously our, our, our audience can't hear, but I, I can wholeheartedly agree because uh, – even speaking from a personal experience now, I, I am definitely one of those high in confidence 
kind of people, but I've certainly battled with moments of low self-esteem and low self-worth. And, and, and I often, I've, I still to this day say that other people sell me better than I sell myself. Um, and even though they will list a load of things that I know to be true and they'll talk about things like he's achieved this and he's done this. I, I sometimes still feel uncomfortable taking that stuff on board because it's like it doesn't it doesn't match with the low self-esteem. Look, I, I want to ask you, though, because this is important. You strike me as a very strong willed character. Like if you stick your mind to something, you can achieve it. Were drugs that difficult to beat that you couldn't turn it to the meth? Or were you not thinking that way? Were you, was your determination actually in producing the meth and, and using you don't have a clue how many questions you just asked uh, inside that, but those are so important and so great. I'm going to tell you, I've been on a lot of podcasts mm. and this is the first time somebody's asked me that question. Um, and it's a great one. So let me start with, am I a strong-willed person? Um, just like everybody, um, I can be both, right? I can be mm. super strong-willed and then I can completely lose discipline on the lamest things. You know, and it's just, it's a thing that happens and it baffles me all the time, right? So, you know, to me, what I found out in the 50 years of being on this planet is that success is not a static thing that just once you reach it, you stay there forever, it's right? You, you've got to keep achieving. And, um, and so if you don't stay disciplined and you don't realize that side of your, your being, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that's goal oriented, right. And, and somebody puts a goal in front of me and I decide it's worthwhile. Uh, it's nothing else in the periphery exists. People's mm. feelings, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever, you know, sleep, any of that stuff. I'm very strong willed that way. And I, um, back to the drugs. This is, the, this is a, a critical question. When I was in the throes of drugs, Okay, so the reason the book is named Patchwork Junkie, which was a very difficult thing for me to do, you have to imagine two and a half years ago, a year ago, I couldn't get on a podcast and talk about my drug addiction in terms of being a junkie. It just mm. wasn't in the cards. I was too scared. You know, a year and a half ago, I couldn't get in front of friends and admit that this was my past. It's a lot easier now, but... Mm. I decided that if I was going to be true to what it was, I had to put that the junkie in the title. Now, I was a junkie. I could not quit then. My mindset was there's no way out. I didn't understand that weakness. I didn't understand why I knew my mom was crying, why my six-year-old son was across town and I hadn't seen him in eight months, right? I mean, mm. I was everything a drug addict is. And again, because of that, I thought the only way this is ever going to happen is to die. Mm. Now, once I got into prison, once I sobered up and decided I will never, ever use that again, I have never been to rehab. I don't go to meetings. And I still, and I hope this doesn't disappoint anybody, I still drink alcohol and I've never relapsed. The closest I ever came to even thinking about, not a relapse, but just thinking about what it was like to use was when I was writing the book. So really? there, there's a mechanism. There's a, 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 a switch inside my brain. I think it exists inside everybody's. I don't want to say I think. I know it does. Hmm. And when you make the decisions that that no longer, like just it's not an option. You'll never do it. Then hmm. it's over for me. 
and it, I don't know if that's will or if that's just, um, uh, you know, a lucky thing to have because I don't fight. I don't struggle with meth addiction. I don't wake up in the mornings and say, oh my God, how am I going to keep myself from using? And my hat's off to all the brothers and sisters out there that do because it breaks my heart mm. because I was like that at one time. So it doesn't seem like willpower when you don't have the temptation anymore. You follow there's me a, on that one? Uh, very much so, yeah. So there's, there's a, I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was that said this to me, but I heard this many years ago that it's almost impossible to change somebody, but to change is the easiest thing in the world. Because once that decision has been made, it's like, right. it's like smoking, for example. How many right. times are smokers told bad for you here's this advert here's all this evidence of what it's not good for but then the second that mother finds out she's pregnant she stops smoking on the spot without the patches without the hypnotherapy without the counseling because a decision has been made it has a different um, motivation for sure very much so and yeah. that's a, that's powerful it, it's, it's very powerful and i agree with you i think everybody everybody has the ability to do that i think what everybody may not have is the understanding as to how to access that Right. And I will tell you that um, I, I feel lucky because I've had to access it in a, in a lot of different ways. And it didn't start with the drugs. You know, I mean, I, I made decisions when I was younger. I made decisions in high school. I mean, I had all sorts of ups and downs. Right. But the big ones for me were, you know, those life changing decisions in the midst of, uh, you know, the most precarious life you can imagine. I mean, mm. when I got indicted federally and didn't know that was even a part of the game, that it was even something that they could do legally, and I go back thinking that I'm – I don't want to say I'm prepared to give my life to God because that gives the connotation that you know I'm, I'm born again and I'm Christian and all those things, and that's that would be fake and disingenuous. Yep. But I'm willing to give my life to, to love mm. uh, and, and trying to figure out what – the connection is between me and everybody else on the planet. To me, that's God, right? And I'm, I'm going from willing to give. And I'm telling you, man, that is the most radical concept you're ever going to get from a kid that grows up in the 70s and the 80s in the middle of America in the Bible Belt to think that the whole world is about love and, and you know, togetherness. Yeah. So I go from that to getting indicted to being super pissed at what was I thinking? My life is going to suck. Oh my God, nobody did me any favors. And mm. I'm literally just going up and down. So I, I get to the point before I walk out of prison where I don't even think I'm going to get out. I've got my out date. I've, I'm three days away from it. All of this is in the book too. And I, I'm so scared to death that the prosecutors are going to come back and have another <laughs> crime in their, in their, you know, hopper and mm. ready to, to come back after me. And I'm not going to make it out and I'm never getting out. And that is so crazy to live inside. But even inside all of that, I had made the decision to quit smoking, to not do drugs. I didn't drink. I was around a lot of people that made alcohol inside mm. prison. I was around a lot of people that, you know, you, you, you got to be protected. So you're around these sorts of things. And so I'm playing cards at the table with the people that sell drugs. And I, I didn't use, I didn't do it. I didn't talk about it. I wouldn't entertain the ideas. I wasn't the guy that was talking about, you know, my next crime and how I can do it better. I was the guy that was always talking about getting out and staying out. Mm. So anyway, I, I, I went off on a tangent there, but, um, no, I love it. Thank yeah, you. And thank you. For, if you love tangents, you're gonna love this. May, thank you for for being so honest. I mean, I, and and do you know what? I I have a I do have a question for you. And if it's 
if it's too emotional, we can always cut this out, right? But I, I'm I but I want okay. I want I want to ask you, okay? Because you just mentioned about you know seeing the connection between God and love, and seeing sure. the the love in the world, and that is God. It's that shared love. It's that shared connection. I first experienced that outside of my marriage. I first experienced that when my children were born. Right. Um, I don't think you even really no, truly know what love is until you have your own children. And, and you, you know, I know not everybody has that, that feeling, but for me, it was, it was a life changing moment that I will, will change me forever. Right. How did that feel leaving behind? I mean, how old was your son when you went into prison? So there, there's there's some complexity to this. Um, the answer, the short answer, my son, when I got arrested, was six. Okay. So six there's a difference between getting arrested and going to prison, but there's no difference to my son. Right. right? Of course, because daddy wasn't yeah. there anymore. Daddy's locked up and daddy's behind glass, you know, for mm. seven years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a that's an important part of a young man's life, the 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 you weren't there for, and let's let's call it as it is, because you chose something else. You chose the drugs. You chose that lifestyle. You didn't choose to get arrested, but as you were saying earlier, you know, you kind of thought that death was the only way out of that anyway. So at some point, he was going to lose his father, either for a long period of time or for a short period of time, possibly forever. What impact has that had on on? on your relationship with him and, and, and actually what impact has that had on him as a young man growing up without his father? That's right. Um, so <clears throat> let me, let me, I, I hope this doesn't sound like I continue to plug the book, but in, inside the book, this is one of those things where I, I wanted everybody to understand, you know, I had this tumultuous relationship with a stepfather it was abusive, right? Mm -hmm. By anybody back then, it wasn't abusive. We had different names for it, right? It was uh, impassioned or whatever, but by <laughs> yeah. today's standards, it was absolutely abusive. And I think you can get behind some of that. But for sure. um, I wanted people to understand that happened to me. And then the guy became really, really cool and became my dad in my late teens. And all of that got patched up. And then I wanted people to understand that I'm no hero because look what I just did to my son. And I made it very clear about the emotional side of it all. I mean, mm. there's this one scene where I have to actually tell him that I've been indicted and he didn't cry. And that bothered me more than anything because I could tell the tears were there. But I saw this look in his face like that's the look that he's never going to forget. And he owes me one. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that's going to come out. And yes, I'm, I'm going to get a little choked up because it comes out in a lot of ways. So you ask me how we're doing now. <clears throat> I can't tell you fully what that did to him. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you is that all the things that you and I and your listeners can imagine are probably true. He feels abandoned. He feels gypped. My son is so smart and it, beyond his experience with what his life should have been, that I can see that he feels like his life should have had a white picket fence, his life should have had a happy mom and dad, and he knew all of that stuff, and he should have been a popular kid in school that played sports and da-da-da-da, and it was the complete opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And he saw that possibility and now lives in this, and he's angry. Mm. And so I try my best to stay away from talking too much about the way Dylan feels, 
But all of that's true. Now, when I got out, <clears throat> Dylan was 13. And by the time he was 14 and a half, he was living with me in California. And, you know, he was a popular kid and he was a three sport athlete. But, you know, the damage was done. Yeah. And we loved him and we gave him a family and we gave him all sorts of stuff. But the damage was done, man. Mm. So we're working on that all the time. He's 29 now. And, uh, and we talk all the time and I love him. I love him. And he gets so tired of hearing that, but, um, we're past the point of me apologizing. He won't listen to it anymore. So mm. hopefully that means he gets it. Now here's something mm. you don't know. Um, I had another son and he got adopted okay. while I was in prison at four years old. And that was like getting your heart ripped out with a rusty spoon. Wow. And I lost 14 years with him. And, you know, the minute he turned 18 years old, he, he reached out to me on Facebook and we got together. I flew him out to California. I'm so happy to see him. And so you lost him from four till 18. Yeah. 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 And so these are real. This is real collateral damage to my decisions. These are real consequences that are very hard for me to. I found forgiveness inside it all. Right. I, I've gotten over the fact that, you know, people make those mistakes. And if they're good people, they go through this, they go through this stage where they don't have the right or the authority to forgive themselves. Right. Because who am I to forgive myself? You know, I, I didn't cause the damage to me, mm -hmm. which may or may not be true. I did cause tons of damage to me. Right. I miss those kids worse than they can possibly imagine. Right. But it, yeah. it was my fault. But I have gotten to a point to where I've forgiven that, where I've realized that those choices that I made were done out of ignorance. And of course they weren't like that wasn't a part of the equation that I saw that any of that stuff would ever happen. For sure. So so I've, I've, I'm in the process of patching up two relationships with a 23-year-old and a 29-year-old that are very, very important to me. And I, my, so I, I have a 10-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old daughter. I'll make this very quick. My 10-year-old daughter looks just like her mother, um, who's Colombian, curly hair, dark skin. My um, eight-year-old daughter, McKenna, looks just like Sean, who was the one that got adopted. And so I find myself, I kiss her and I hug her, and they get the best version of Kyle Houston, but I feel guilty sometimes. Mm. Like, Sean, Sean should have gotten this. And again. It's yeah. It's it's a mixture of emotions that I can talk about all day long, and maybe you still wouldn't get it. But yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And I've tough. cried, and and you know, during the process of writing the book, um, you know, I put myself in their shoes the best I could. I called them a lot. Sean's reading the book. Dylan probably never will. I was it's, just about to ask if the boys read the book. Yeah, Sean. Uh, Dylan said he's never going to read it, and and I I respect it as to why. You know, um, which it, it's his choice. It's his choice, and it, it it wasn't written for him. Yeah. You know, it wasn't written as an apology to him. Um, you know. Well, it was the, it was the warts and all way that you've told it. That must be painful for those around you who love you to and know you now. Yeah. To to read that. Yeah. Um, you know, because it, it is literally taking the, the most difficult and darkest moments of your life and putting a light on them. No warts and all, no filter, no nothing. It's like, That's right. here it is. And, and here's how bad it got. That's right. Yeah. You know what? I, I really hope you get a chance to dive into it. Um, I certainly will. Because you, uh, 
it's I'm I'm proud of the writing and I'm I'm the finished product, I mean, just the feedback, forget the way I feel about it. You know, like I think any author thinks their book's pretty cool. Right. But yep. the feedback that I get, it's just, even my sister who, you know, quasi lived it with me, she read the book and was like, I didn't know. And she's very religious, very staunch Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. And she loves this book. And by the way, there's, I think 265 f bombs in this thing, right? So it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't pull any punches. <laughs> and uh, and my biggest demographic right now is soccer moms, and and they all oh, just interesting. Yeah, they first question at how's Dylan, how's Sean? You know, mm. they, they just want to know. So, and you can I can understand that. I mean, I, and I can so and, the soccer mom thing or the question both. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think I think you can see how well you've done. So you can see that you you took those pieces and you built a foundation. Now, whether or not you were open to talking about that foundation for a long time, that's mm-hmm. almost a separate issue. The point is that you didn't reoffend. You didn't go back into that line of, of, of life. You know, the I don't know what they are, but the statistics are pretty horrifying about the reoffend rate, um, especially for somebody who spent that length of time in prison, especially meeting with the people you did. I mean, let's be honest, it would have been very easy for you to go back into a similar line of work when you came out with the connections that you've just made on the inside. Uh, so, so I disagree with that. Oh, really? Yeah, I disagree with it. I mean, look, it certainly well, I've I'm, never been inside, so I'll, I'll jump out to your better judgment. <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, when you understand, when you understand what's going on inside my head, I think you'll understand how difficult it would be for me to go back to that environment. So mm. here's what I would say. You're right. The recidivist, uh, recidivist, yeah, anyway, it's a tough word. Anyway, the, the yep. amount of people that reoffend that come back in, it's in the 80 percentile wow. within, yeah, within the first five <laughs> years. And so what I never have ever done and I never will <laughs> is subscribe to statistics. Yeah, like, they true. don't, they don't apply to me. Okay. They just apply to the people that listen to them. Right. So I don't care about that. Um, I actually have a saying that in the rock, paper, scissors of life, um, the human will beats statistical probability every single time. And that's what everybody needs to understand. Hey, don't steal that from me. That's a direct. No, I like it. (laughs) But when you understand, I went into prison. So accidentally, let's just use that word. I accidentally got addicted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a far stretch for me to bump elbows with those people because I was doing recreational drugs. Yes. Like I was that kind of a guy that liked to check out the wild side and then come back home. I just love that. Right. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. And let me tell you something to help me with startup companies too, by the way, because I just, you know, plow through things and don't pay attention to rules, but, um, it, legally anyway, legally. Yep, yep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I go into prison and I'm, I'm facing life twice where I feel like I'm never going to come out again. I'm scared to death right? That's my motivation. We talked about pregnant women quitting smoking. That's my motivation to never do meth again. That's Mm -hmm. my switch. Plus I come from a decent environment. I come from small town values. I come from good people that know your mom and your, your grandpa's first name, you know, that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. it's unnatural for me to go back into that environment. It's only natural for me to come out and be around the good people that are ambitious and want to work. So to me, because I had my head screwed on straight, it's different than the guy that's 
from the hood or from the he, trailer. He almost had no other did, option, did he? Who yeah. just went in and his dad and his uncles and his brothers and his entire neighborhood's in there, right? That's natural for them to go out and commit more crimes. I, I tell everybody, I don't understand how a kid can go in at 18 years old in his formative years, come out at 30 and not go back. I don't see how they have a chance because mm. everything they learned about status and what matters and power and you know identity all happened in that 12-year period of time from 18 to 30 while they were in prison. Like that's the miracle, not me. Like I'd be a total piece of you know what if I went back in there. Mm. Like I could have made a mistake and offended. Like, you know, that that was easy to do. That was hard to walk what's called walk your paper. Mm. But for me to go back and commit another crime or cook dope or use again, mm, not me, man. No way. No, that makes a lot of sense because it's, it's a lot about the circumstances, isn't it? And I, I guess, you know, you just summed it up pretty well. That wasn't the stock that you came from. That's right. Um, yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's that, that. Thank you that that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, you're so right. You're so right. And, and you know, you're I, I, I don't know what the reaction was, but obviously you've mentioned your your sister has now read the book and, and has a, a greater understanding of kind of what went before. But, you know, it sounds like you were pretty blessed that you still had a family there who hadn't kind of washed their hands of you at that point that, you know, you, you came out and you did have that network around you to welcome you back into that community because let's be honest i mean I, there are very many people that will never go near a particular location again or their family again and uh you know i, I think about where i grew up and like i i think about i don't go there <laughs> uh, i don't go where i grew up and i don't go where i grew up because it's i find it very difficult for me to differentiate between what i was and what they knew of me as a child and who I am today. Like for me, those are not the same person. Um, so I, I just avoid that scenario entirely. So to have that network there to kind of welcome you back into that white picket fence community again and kind of be like, look, okay, look, you screwed up, but you you don't have to be a screw up. You know? It didn't happen that way. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, you yeah. ruined it now. No, <laughs> you're not ruining anything. No, you're go not on, ruining tell anything. Me. No, uh, you're the one thing that you're 100% right about is uh, not only was I very fortunate, right, in a lot of ways, but the most fortunate thing about me coming out is I saw the blessings, right? Okay. I yeah. never had a victim mentality ever. And even when I got reindicted, like I, I could have easily said, oh, my God, this doesn't happen to anybody else. I didn't, they were going to let me. No, I said, hey, man, this is the wages of sin, dude. You shouldn't have been out there doing what you did. Now, what are you going to do about it? Now, that didn't happen the very first time I heard about it. Yeah. But when I walked out, um, first of all, getting my mother to trust me again you know, wasn't the easiest thing in the world. And in the first part of my incarceration, she wasn't coming to see me. Oh, but for really? the most part, my mom, like, this is my son. What did I do wrong? And, you know, that's another relationship that's, that gets uh, out inside the book, um, which is just crazy. But when I walked out, um, my sister and I had just rekindled our relationship like three or four years before I walked out because we hadn't talked for like 10 or 15 before that. Wow. So, yeah, so we had these weird relationships. Um, and my sister, I'm she was my biggest fan and she would do anything for me. But walking out wasn't I, – there were times where I felt like going back would be so much easier. 
Like I entertained, like there was no place for me in the world. I would love to tell you that the first three months of my life, I was just like I am now when I walked out and none of that was true. There was so much um, internal, like loneliness because nobody got me. Not only is there no place in the world for me, this was my mindset, but nobody understands me. Nobody, not the people in prison. I just spent seven years. Those people didn't get me, right? Mm. Now I'm outside and I'm more comfortable with the people inside than I am with the, and you know, people in the offices that I worked in, you know, they didn't understand why I didn't know Excel and why I didn't know Word, but it drove me to go home and become an expert in that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the white picket fence community. The other thing that I was blessed with was mm -hmm. I didn't go back to Kansas City. My you mom, didn't. my sister, my, my stepfather had died while I was in prison. Very sad story. It's in the book. And um, everybody had moved to St. Petersburg, Florida. And so I get out of Miami and go to St. Petersburg where I don't know anybody other than my family. Fresh That's up. a blessing. Mm. To your point, right? I didn't have to walk back where my identity was whatever it was as a child. And, and that, that was fortunate for me. And then I got some opportunities that I made happen out in San Francisco and I'm, I'm clean slate, you know, brand new dude. And I'm, I'm out where nobody knows me. Best thing that could ever happen to me. Yeah. I can relate to that. I really can. And I, and I admire that a lot actually. So thank you for sharing. I think that's, um, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Cause I, you know, I, it's funny, isn't it? Like that's the, when I think about reoffending and things like that, like it's quite often for me, it's like, how can you put people back onto the same streets where they walked, where people know yeah. that reputation, mm -hmm. everybody there knows who you are, what you did and, and makes assumptions about who you are. And let's be honest, they say that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. So if people look at you and think this is who you were, then their assumption is actually that this is who you are and are going to continue to be. And and I, it sounds like that fresh break and that fresh location gave you the ability to say, you know, it's up to me kind of what I, it's a blank canvas, isn't it? It's up to me what I put on this now. Yeah. It's a combination of all the things we talked about and more. I think the general consensus with people, um, and I hope it changes someday, right? But I think the general consensus is they just did seven years, five years, whatever it is. They've been offered tools. Now it's their decision. If they go back out and reoffend, you know, they're stupid and that's their fault. But the truth is, is they don't know any better. Mm. I mean, we have a real problem. I don't know what it's like in your country. Okay. I'm just going to tell you what it's like here. I don't necessarily want my family around those people that are in prison. Bad people go to prison. Let's just get that straight. Right. Um, but so do good people. And mm. what, what I'm saying is the people that are quote unquote bad that are in prison are a product of their environment. And we are not giving them a fair shake or a chance. And I don't know how to give them a chance. I don't know that they want a chance. I don't know that they can ever be deprogrammed in a way to where they see the world completely differently. But the truth is, is that the onus is on society maybe we still need to keep sticking them back in prison, but we're not giving them a chance. This, this will be your noodle. Um, I had a state parole officer and I had a federal probation officer, the state parole officer, very first conversation, probably the first three sentences, he made it clear that it's his job to put me back in prison. That was his philosophy. 
I just want you to know, Mr. Houston, it is my job to put you back in prison. So you watch your P's and Q's. Mind your wow. P's and Q's. Now, here I am thinking I'm out. Like, like I've done my time. I've paid my penance. Now I get to be a normal guy and I'm excited. I'm excited. He says that breaks my heart. Of course. The federal guy tells me that it's his job to help me reassimilate back into society. Hmm. And he sends me to a counselor and, you know, his drug tests are, um, they just feel like they're helpful. Yes. You know, they're not a punishment or like they're trying to catch something. Trying to catch you out. Yeah. So I sit there and I think, my God, and, and oh my, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud person. I wanted to buck the system. I want to tell that guy to go F himself. I, I wanted to do all those things, but I couldn't imagine if I didn't have manners and wasn't raised around those people, what yeah. my reaction would be like, ah, just take me in now. So I mm. don't see how you ever keep anybody out that is, you know, has grown up in that environment. Mm. It's just a really bad system. And we're going way into the weeds on this stuff, but it's it's just I don't know. It cropped up, and I thought I'd. I'd but you, you know, you're right. You are certainly right. I mean, I, I it's the same this side as well. So I, I actually know a number of people who have done relatively long stretches and then have done something stupid to get themselves put back inside because they couldn't acclimatize once they came out. Um, I mean, I remember one guy said to me, uh, like um, he was he was waiting for his trial date. They hadn't remanded him. He was waiting for his trial date, and he was gonna go back inside like he knew he was going back inside and i said like what have you done that for like you've only just come out and he's like dude i have a crappy job and if i miss my job for like a day they're gonna send me back anyway i'm staying in a bed sit like i have nobody i have nothing i'm miserable it's damp it's cold at least inside i get three meals a day i know where i'm sleeping and my mates are there and it was like you know, he, he, he doesn't want to be outside. He wants to be back in there. So I'll tell you what he did as well, because it was a really stupid thing. Cause it was, it, he, it was the sole intention was to go back to prison. He took a big two by four out of a skip and he threw it through a fish and chip shop window, just this big plate glass window, set the alarm off and then sat there outside until the police arrived. He, he just did this with the sole intention of going back inside. And, and, and that that was i think the moment that really struck me when i kind of realized that the system isn't doing enough to kind of rehabilitate people and really help Mm -hmm. them kind of um you know we have things like restorative justice here where you can kind of go and do like community service depending on your crime but you can go and do community service for other victims of crime sometimes for even the victim of your crime like if you rob their house like you can go and do some painting and decorating and some gardening for them like and, sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, it's like not like exactly. I was like, I don't, I don't I want to get around my house painting. No, but this is my point. I was like, I can't see how this is helping either of these people. Like, you're taking that person back to the very worst moment of their life, this really dark place where they've been. They had to go and do that, and you're also bringing the person who has caused so much heartache and stress and anxiety to the victim into their home. Like, I can't see how any of this is a good idea. But this is all part of this um you know helping them to make amends so that they're a better human being so that by the time they get out there they've they've paid back their crime and they can now focus on rehabilitation but it doesn't sound like on either side of the pond we're doing a great deal to actually facilitate that no no um i mean i lived it right so i can tell you firsthand i mean it's the system the system literally and it's not designed to be this way but you've got convicts on one side that are Everything is a game, 
Mm-hmm. Everything is a is a con, right? I mean, they're they're trying to get over on you. They're trying to steal your pins. They're trying to steal your staplers. Whatever it is, if you're a counselor, yeah. If you're a counselor, you're trying not to look like a sucker, so you're always staring them down, right? And then you yeah. get a guy like me that really doesn't belong on either side of that fence that comes in, and I'm, I hate to say a victim, but I'm a I'm a circumstance or a consequence of that system. Mm. So people it's impossible with the way it is for anybody to encourage self-worth or self-esteem or pride, right? It's the only thing they're encouraging is this, whatever friction they've got between each other, they're encouraging that to to exist and Mm. and potentially exacerbate that, right? If you hate me because I'm a counselor, I hate you because you're a convict. And so that just continues to feed off itself, Mm. right? You're a liar. And it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy and it doesn't help. And you take a guy like me and, and, you know, you've asked if I was strong willed and you asked a couple other questions and, you know, I'm not the dumbest guy in the world. And, and, you know, I think I can work these things out and I walk out thinking I'm better back in there. Right. Mm. So that's deep. Yeah. Look, I I have to ask you when, when, and what was it that kind of helped you sort of find that passion for business again you know you've come out you know you're, you're feeling like maybe i'm better off inside because nobody understands me sort of in here or out there actually you know nobody really understands me anywhere when did that change you know when did you find that thing that you thought you know what i can do this and i can really make a go of this yeah i can make it really really simple i when i felt like i had purpose when i felt like i had meaning at a business that's when it all changed i mean when i was at the call center I was a number. They're just chewing people up and spitting them out, right? It was a, mm-hmm. a horrible job. You're getting hung up on all day long. And they know that if they're going to hire anybody to sit in that seat, it's going to be convicts or, you know, teenage pregnant mothers or what, you know, they're going to extort some demographic. Sure. And so when I, I went to a company called The Moorings, um, you may have heard of it. It's a British company. It's the biggest yacht charting company in the world. Okay, cool. Um, and so I went there and I got put in charge of the boat shows, the, the trade shows that they did. And that was my thing. Like the way the, um, you know, the way everything looked, the, you know, people had their water, da, 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 da. And, and now I had purpose and meaning. And the crazy thing about it is that I'm a 35 year old guy, right? So when people ask me like, break down, how did you become successful? I inevitably tell them success for me started when I was on the inside. Because that's when I got my head screwed on straight. When I was mopping floors and wiping tables, I would tell myself every day, even if there was a spot left on there and I wanted to walk away because who gives a shit? I would tell, by the way, can I cuss? I'm sorry. Yeah, you're good. Well, if it goes on, when it goes on radio, we'll block it out anyway. So don't worry. Okay, my bad. Anyway, (laughs) so who cares about that spot? And then I would tell myself, if I can't clean everything on this floor better than everybody in here, how can I ever get out? and become an executive in a business? How can I ever get out and become successful? And so that's where my mindset started. But once I got out, it was all about literally humility and being able to see my opportunities. Mm. I didn't have 500 opportunities. I didn't have 50 opportunities. I had one or two. Mm. So they weren't hard to see. And they look like work. But I had to realize that that's what I was going to go after. So once I got a hold of and by the way, I got this job because I wrote a six-page dissertation to the vice president. Like he read it and he's like, 
what is this guy doing writing these things? Because I was telling him how I could make it more profitable and I could do all these things. When he hired me, it's like I took all that on. Yeah, I love that. And so immediately, this is this is where it started. And, and I won't go down the full path of how I went from there to uh, Silicon Valley. But I was going to these trade shows and I was networking. So now I've got my my mind on like, this isn't going to be my job forever. I need to meet all the people that matter. Mm-hmm. I'm back in the game, right? The people at the trade shows didn't know I was the boat show guy. They thought I was the director of marketing. So right. I left. And then one day somebody comes to me that is running. And these are big boat shows. Like this is Miami boat show. This is Annapolis, Maryland boat show. And somebody comes to me and says, hey, we need somebody to do a power, a, a presentation on Tortola charters. And I, I just like I did with everybody, my hand goes up. I'm your guy. I'll do it. I had no idea how to operate PowerPoint. I'd never <laughs> done a presentation for anybody. And I put it together. I go home. My wife and I put it together. I start giving these presentations at these boat shows and the people I work for don't even know I'm doing it. And I start packing rooms like they don't have enough seats and people are sitting on the floor to listen to these presentations and I'm paying attention to how they laugh and, you know, what gets people to do this and, you know, what, what, when do they raise their hands? And and I teach myself how to do presentations, which literally boiled into my skill set that did all the other stuff. Mm. I love that. You just mentioned two things that are very close to my heart, but you mentioned a lot actually, but two things that are very, very close to my heart. I'm to sleep, Phil, so I'm No, glad. man. No, I'm loving it. We could we could go, we could do make this like a Joe Rogan style thing. We're going to be here for four hours. Buckle in, guys. <laughs> Stick the coffee on. Now, um, so number one is that it starts with mindset. Like I am, I am a firm believer in that. Like you can give somebody all of the tools to be successful, but if they haven't got the right mindset, it's not going to work. Uh, or if it will, it will be very short-lived. It's these people that have like an instant spike of success and then it all falls apart again. It's because, like you said, like once you're there, there's there's a there's a maintenance thing. It's like spinning plates. It's having it's the ability to understand. It's the ability to be agile enough to grow while being determined enough to to keep going day to day with what you have. Um, and it's it all comes down to that mindset. So I love the fact that you said that that started for you. Uh, when you were in prison and it was like you 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 made the decision that that table was going to be cleaner than anybody else could make it because Even that was your, yeah i love that because that was your sense of pride and, and that really comes through with your mindset and i think i i do a lot of work when i tell people you know it's about reconnecting with your essence like i get a lot of business owners that come to me and say I feel like we've reached the ceiling and then they'll tell you this whole big long list of reasons why they've reached the ceiling that they think and it often comes down to they've lost what it is that they love about it. They've lost connection to it. The mindset's not right. If they can reconnect back to why they fell in love with doing this in the first place and get their mindset into that place, everything else just becomes almost effortless. Of course, you still need to take effort and do this, but it becomes so much easier. And um, the other thing that you mentioned was about the networking. It's like when you started taking over the boat shows, it was like, I'm in a room full of people. I need to know who's who and I need to That's understand right. it. We had this conversation off air, didn't we? For me, networking is is the thing that that really changed my life because I'm, I'm and it's what I teach through my coaching work now. Podcasting is just the vehicle that we teach people how to do it with. You know, I, I I say that podcasting is you know you put amazing people in a room together, incredible things happen. I just teach people how to use that room digitally now that comes from podcasting, but you could do this in a whole variety of ways, right? It's just that podcasting is the one that worked for me, so it's the one that I teach. But it's that whole, your network is your net worth. 
you know, you can learn from other people. I mean, Napoleon Hill was a genius in this. You know, he got it right, didn't he? You, you, you have conversations with that many successful people. You, you're going to learn things. You're going to see how they communicate, how they conduct themselves, how they behave. And if you learn those lessons from people that they will free, so freely give when you open up and have these kind of conversations with people too, you know, you already have a lot of the ingredients there to become successful. You just have to look at what other people are doing and, and make sure that you're a part of it. Without my network, without what I built, I mean, every single outside of that first job I got, nobody knew about my background. Mm. People were like, why is this 35, 36, 37-year-old guy, you know, at this level and this bright? Like, they would scratch their heads every once in a while, and then I would get a promotion, right? Mm -hmm. It would be all over. But the, the, without my network, I couldn't have gone – I literally leapfrogged from business to business to opportunity to opportunity without a resume. Mm. I, I had my resume and there was some BS in my resume because I couldn't talk about the 10-year work history gap. Yeah. But, but I, um, I literally just networked. I literally just had people, hey, you know, I want to talk to this guy. Can you tell him what you think about me? And they would. I love and it. And I was blessed to have him in there, but they believed in me. And then those people would say, hey, if this guy vouches for you, let's see what you can do. And I mean, that climbed all the way from a inside sales guy to eventually, I, I walked in with a resume for my last vice president's job, mm -hmm. but I had the job. All I had to do was show up and have the resume in my hand mm -hmm. because of the people that had said, this is the guy you need. And this was a situation where I didn't even ask for it. Like somebody, mm -hmm. like the CEO at the time had called a friend of mine who, you know, had his master's, his uh, uh, MBA from Stanford. And he had a, an undergrad from MIT, really, really bright guy that thought a lot about me. Mm -hmm. And then he, the CEO of the company calls him up and wants a reference for a different person. And as he's telling him about what the job is, he said, you need Kyle Houston. And that's how I start getting my positions. So network was everything. If you yes. want to know how I got around background checks, network. You want to know how I climbed the ladder? Network. If you want to know how I learned <laughs> everything I could, network and Google, right? Yeah. So you are, Kyle, you're speaking my language because, you know, I say the same thing all the time regarding network. It's like people say to me, you know, how did you end up speaking on that stage, you know, on the other side of the world? How did you end up with this opportunity? How did you end up at board level at that age? And every single time it comes down to networking. Now, I caveat that and say it often comes down to networking through podcasting. So it actually does the two together. But it's still networking. It's still yeah. People, people buy people. And that's the one thing that uh, no matter how complicated business comes with algorithms and, and data and, and uh, digital and all this kind of stuff, the people making the decisions sat in that boardroom are still human beings. They still like to do business with people that they know, like, and trust. They still like to have that personal impact. So if, you, if your industry has any form of personal relationships, which I would imagine most, if not all industries do, networking is the key to that success and i'm not talking about networking here when we because we've all been to them i'm not talking about those awful networking mornings where you turn up and you get two minutes to pitch who you are 
and nobody's paying any attention to what you're saying because they're so busy thinking about what they're going to pitch during those two minutes. You stand up, blurt out a load of nonsense, and then having a coffee afterwards, you just play like Russian roulette with business cards and see what's going on. Like that's not networking. That's no. just that's just bunking off work for the morning. You know. Well, so, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, you're right. I'm, I'm just saying. So that, that's that's like bunking off work for the morning. And actually, when we're talking about networking, we're really talking about you know looking at somebody and, and who they are and really kind of wanting to have a discussion not to sell them something not to for them to sell you something just to have that shared experience of you tell me about you i'll tell you about me and if we both learn something from this conversation with then we've both we've both earned haven't we we've both grown well so mine even went deeper i mean it's you're you're absolutely right spot on about literally everything especially when you go into those networking groups and they have a mandate to introduce you to two or three people. That Those aren't real introductions. That's not real. Like when you've got loyalty and you've exchanged currency of trust and you've been in the trenches with somebody and that person's a part of your network, mm-hmm. when, you've, when you've actually built something with these people, right? And I mean, I this is what I've told everybody that's ever worked for me. So, I mean, the one thing we didn't get into is that I, I grew these incredible – sales organizations from scratch, two of them in a row. Right. Mm. And I would get young guys, you know, not everybody was young on the team, but I would get these young guys and I would coach them through what their network means and what loyalty means and what showing up every single day means and what not burning bridges means because everybody helps everybody when they respect and like you, Mm -hmm. they just, they can't help it. Oh, you need some help. You got it. If they're worth it, right. There's selfish people out there And so you're not going to necessarily get that with podcasts, but what you do get with podcasts is a wider net for Mm -hmm. sure. And if you're accomplished like you are, Phil, and people realize that, then they're going to make the right introductions or they're going to put you in front of the right people and all that's great. You have literally grown a company from 1.5 million to 14.1 in a year with the vice president of engineering, right? And he sees how hard you work and you've had a couple beers with him. Now you are real allies you know that's the currency that's the sort of thing that i i don't want to say collect but if you can garner those kind of relationships then it's your fault if you're not successful yeah that's so true but it it shows you how many people burn their bridges along the way doesn't it like it it always amazes me it's amazing you've just destroyed a relationship that's taking you so long to build up and in the matter of Sometimes just minutes, you just completely ruined it. For what, right? Sometimes, like I've had people ruin relationships over a couple hundred dollars mm. with me. And it's like, mm. you know, I mean, we've done so much together, really? You know, and it's like, you, I just can't believe it. And I'm, I'm talking about people that have bought millions and millions of dollars worth of product from me. Mm. And then, ah, just, it just, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it ever. Uh, and no as a sales guy, I would give anybody anything if I thought that a relationship was going to go, eh, let me take back anything. I would give people an inordinate amount, an inordinate amount of stuff. Mm. Like at that point, bottom line needs to become the relationship that you keep, right? Not your margins, not, you know, all of the stuff that people traditionally think, you know, is how you score business. Mm. It really at some point needs to become that relationship. 
because then your bottom line changes. So anyway, I'm with you, man. It, it kills me to see, especially, I, I, do you have a lot of younger people that listen to this? A mixture, a real mixture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I hope they really listen because relationship building is becoming a lost art. It is. It really is. And um, and I, I'm not trying to be the old guy that says, ah, when I was a kid, you know, blah, no, blah, No, it's blah. the main reason I have a coaching practice is because people don't understand relationship building anymore. Relationship building and networking is at the heart of every successful thing that I've ever done. And yet I go out into the workplace and see that it, it's like, it's this forgotten art. You know, you've got people who are so busy trying to learn how to do, you know, digital landing pages and click funnels and Facebook advertising that's going to drive people towards something so that it can be this seamless sales process where they never have to speak to somebody so that they can sit in their house or sit on a beach somewhere and just have the money turn up. But you never build a relationship with somebody. So you may have some success with that for a period of time. But when times change or things get hard or as it, as is often the case, let's take Facebook as an example. When Facebook first started, it was really easy to make money on Facebook. Now, like you have to pay a lot of money just to even get in front of your audience. And they're so, you know, acclimatized to being bombarded with adverts that half the time it doesn't even register with them anymore. Those are the businesses who are in trouble because they have no relationships to fall back on. None. Here's here's where there's a real opportunity out there too. And I I I wished I could get, and I should, I probably should get, you know, 50 digital marketing gurus in a room because the missing component for the vast majority, because I mean, this has been my experience. The missing component is to be able to translate what it is you're doing, not every single thing you're doing, but literally translate what you are doing to a person that didn't grow up with Facebook. Like now you're, you just created the golden goose because when I jump in and I, I'm, I understand digital marketing enough to, call BS, right? Yep. And it's not like I need somebody with a whiteboard and they explain every single little thing, but most of these people don't even have the desire to explain it. It's like, this is my price. Well, what do I get for that price? You get me and I'm going to give you this many leads. And it's like, well, well how do you do it? What is, you know, and they mm-hmm. refuse to do it. And if anybody just slowed down and understood how important that piece was, they would have more business than they could possibly know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's that translation. It's that chasm between, um, and I don't even want to use age groups because I mean, there's 30 year old people that don't understand digital marketing. It's literally the chasm between the people that have lived inside digital marketing, understand funnels, understand um, automation, understand all those things, and the people that haven't. Mm-hmm. You can just convey all of that in a way in in regular human speak, then you're going to make a ton of money, and you're going to build a network. So you're going to kill mm. birds with one stone. There's a nugget for anybody listening. <laughs> well, I, and I love it. And uh, it's certainly a conversation that you and I need to have in more detail as well. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. It really is. Um, okay, look, let's talk about today. So we've, I, want to, I want to bring us nicely full circle. So um, obviously re- rekindled the relationship with both of the boys. Um, uh, amazing wife, um, you know, two beautiful little girls. Uh, you know, and I see the smile on your face as, as I, as I mentioned your family, you know, so it's, it's clear to see kind of what family means to you. And, um, talk to me about Kyle today, Kyle, who's been through all of these experiences, Kyle, who has, you know, may I say been brave enough. I mean, and this is the thing I said to you when we first spoke, I, I admire your courage so much the way that you talk about 
what you've been through and what you went through and also what you put other people through. I really, really admire that because I think that that takes some serious balls. Like it's impressive enough that you came out and you made what you did with your life, you know, having, having been through that journey, but to then be in the position that you are today to come out and talk about that, to help and empower other people and to inspire them and show them there's another way. Like seriously, massive kudos to you, my friend. Uh, thank you very much. And I uh, look, um, if there's any ego, you know, to any of this stuff, uh, what you just told me is everything I ever wanted to hear. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I want people to recognize about me. So the next phase of my life, which is now the next phase of my life is all about having, I, you know, I, I still want to get to a point to where I'm making the kind of money I'm accustomed to making. Right. Yep. And it, it's no small amount. Um, not there yet, but I mean, we're in the beginning phases where we're figuring things out. The most important to me is that part of my bottom line has the give back built into it. I want to, it, it's, I pull back the reins a little bit on this stuff because it sounds trite, but hopefully it, it means something coming for me. Mm. I know that the more people that I can affect, the more people that I can take all of this experience and pass it on, because I have a unique opportunity to literally sit down and meet people where they're at and actually be the one person that says, I know how you feel mm. in so many areas of life. You and I, whoop, you and I've had a conversation like that. And I've said, I know how you feel. And I meant it. Mm. I want to be able to take that knowledge and experience and strengthen people and just make my living starting ripple effects mm. and change the world. And you're doing that already, genuinely. So, you know, some of my listeners have been listening to me for a number of years now and, and, and you know, kind of knew what I wanted them to know <laughs> about kind of most aspects of my life. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, you've been hearing me talk much more about um, the fact that I didn't have the greatest start when it came to my childhood. There was suicide attempts there was domestic violence i was in and out of the social care system and we've had that discussion and you i genuinely want to give you this credit on air you are the reason that i'm i'm much more au fait with talking about this stuff because look i still have a long journey to go i haven't had the cathartic exercise of writing the book and being able to kind of get all of that down although it's something i'm seriously considering um but it was it was the fact that you were talking about the the, the you know inspiring other people with it and and the the being able to not not carry it around not carry around that fear of people finding out you you lose that fear of people finding out when you've just said well here it is you know warts and alls this is what it looks like so your strength and courage was what gave me the strength and courage to start talking about that and opening up about that not just on podcasting and and with my colleagues but with my family as well like there's things about my childhood that over the past I'd say three weeks or so my wife has learned about me after almost 10 years of marriage. Um, Cause it, it wasn't something that I wanted to revisit, but I was revisiting it through. How can I word this? I was, re if I ever did revisit it, I was revisiting it through victimized. I was throwing myself a bit, myself a bit of a pity party. It was like, Oh, you know, why didn't I have the nice childhood? You know, as you mentioned with your son earlier, like, why didn't I have the mom and dad that got on and the white picket fence? And like, why couldn't I have that? 
And that was the way that I used to look at it. Now I look at it and say, actually, I want to tell other people who are in that position or who have come from that position, like, there is a way out. Like, I love the life I live now. Like, and I'm, I'm still just building. I'm still a relatively young guy. But like, I genuinely, like, I adore what I have. I have this amazing family. I have two young children. I love my business. I love the work that I get to do. I love the fact that I get to travel the world. And none of these things at one stage of my life would have seemed even remotely possible. So that's that's what's really inspired me. So thank you so much for for everything, for the conversation and for for having the the passion and determination and the courage to write that book and, and share your message. And I I wholeheartedly believe 110% that you will, you will create a lot of those ripple effects that you're hoping to create. Yeah, I, that's a lot of good stuff for me to hear. I'm glad that that was recorded on air because uh, I'm going to replay that a couple different times. No, listen, what is the most important thing to me about you <clears throat> is, yes, I want you to get it out there. I want you to um, have the courage to tell people, but be, the reason I want that to happen is because there's things that you need to forgive. There's mm. things that you need to release that still hold back things that you happiness and fulfillment that you can't imagine right now. And when that happens, whether I know it or not, that that's hopefully I will know it. That would make me extremely happy. Sure. So the great thing about our conversation, the one that we had offline, the great thing about this conversation was that it was genuine. We knew what we were coming to the plate with and I loved it. Um, the great thing about our conversation before was that I can also tell you, I know how you feel mm. because telling the story, I didn't just show up one day and had all the bravery in the world, all the courage in the world to say it. I thought the world was going to implode. Mm. I thought that my wife and kids were going to suffer because I told friends in our community about it. I thought my wife would lose friends. I thought all of those things. And guess what? It didn't happen. And if mm. it did, it only happened with people that didn't matter. So um, on the other side of whatever it is you were worried about a month ago, on the other side of that is everything you can dream of, man. That's mm -hmm. a big part. And, and I'll also tell you this, the thing that is the most amazing, and I think about it every single day, <clears throat> would I change anything, right? I think about it like I, I couldn't be this happy. I couldn't, no way I could be this empathetic. I couldn't understand your problems. I couldn't understand people that I talked to. I could not possibly do it at the level that I can now if I hadn't gone through every single heartache, tragedy, uh, you know, contemplation that I went through. Mm. So ultimately, people ask me, if you could go back and talk to your 24-year-old self, what would you tell them? And I struggle with that. Mm. Like the best thing I can think of, because I would not tell them, don't do meth. I would, I, I would tell anybody else that, but I would tell them, stay alive yeah. because it's going to be beautiful. Like that's the one thing I would tell my 24-year-old self. I, I wouldn't change that. anything, man. So what you went through makes you capable and available to much more happiness and success than you ever could have had. That's what I love about you, man. Thank you. Honestly, that, that means a great deal. And actually, when you're saying that, I'm thinking about my kids. I'm thinking about the relationship I have with my children. And, and I often think that I have a the relationship I have with them is because of the lack of relationship. Of yeah, where, like when I was younger. like Even things like what we talk about networking, so we'll combine the two. 
like I uh, I didn't have a, a relationship with my father full stop. Uh, and like you, as we discussed off air, I had a very abusive stepfather who pretty much just used me as a punch bag for the years that he was in my life. And we, we didn't rekindle. In fact, I'm not sure I'd pee on that guy if he was on fire, to be completely honest. Um, but, um, you know, he he's not my favorite person. But what happened was when I, when we were, you know, I always knew that I wanted to be a dad. Like I remember really distinctly um, being about 14, 15 years old, laying in my bed, uh, still sore from the latest hiding I've just got, thinking to myself, like, what, it's not going to always be like this. Like one day I'm going to have a wife and I'm going to have children and our house is going to be filled full of laughter and love. And I don't, it doesn't have to be like this, you know, like I've seen other people's families. Like I don't have to be like this. And as I got older, what that started to manifest itself into is, was, you know, a little bit of fear. Like when I found out my wife was pregnant, I remember kind of thinking, I don't know how to be a dad. Like I have no good examples, here. <laughs> you know, like I have nothing to base this on. So I went and started networking with people. And one of whom is actually my father-in-law who are incredible fathers. They're, they're great men, but they they are incredible fathers. Um, and my whole purpose of, of, of networking with them was to learn from them. I wanted to see what made them great fathers. What makes it that children of different ages, some that like my wife are now adults, who will say I had the best dad in the world. Like my dad was amazing. And it was like, okay, how do I do that? Cause I want to do that for my kids. My kids deserve that dad. So how do I do that? Um, and this is what I mean by the power of networking is the power of networking has done everything for my life. Like it was, you know, it made me a better athlete because I would go and hang around other people who were better athletes and learn from them. It made me a better father. Cause I went and learned from them, better business person. Cause I went and learned from them. Um, better friend like better everything you and you when you raise your game and you level up and you you meet with these people it's and, and people like you you know it's the lessons that you learn from them that give you the courage and the strength to say it, it doesn't have to be the way that it was i can make this different i i sit there i mean i'm just sitting here thinking about my daughters i, I was listening to everything you said but how critical even before they were born that it was for me to have children. I mean, and look, I hate articulating it this way, but they get a phenomenal daddy because of how much I screwed up with their brothers, mm. you know, and because of the way I was treated as a kid and because of all these different things, mm. but it culminates into something amazing. And I, you know, I just, I, I want to be a, I keep saying den mother, but it's a troop leader for my girls, um, Girl Scout troops. And it really isn't what guys do. And, but I want to. Why so not? Bad. Yeah. And, and so I am. And um, I went and I said something the other day in front of all the girls. And it was a little deep for a mm. bunch of 10 year old girls, but my girls got it. And I just look at how they interact and how confident they are and how just they're in control of their emotions, you know, and it's something that I don't even have at 50. And mm. I, I take some credit for that. And I love it. I do. So I hopefully I'll raise little girls that really start a ripple effect and change the world in some way. 
but that's my goal. By the way, I do want to tell you this. I'm the best father and the worst father because last night it was just the three of us mm. and they wanted to do homework. And all I wanted to do was listen to eighties rock and roll yeah. and see if you could guess it all. So I'm a bad father that way, but <laughs> luckily they keep me on task. It, it's funny. My, my children are both homeschooled and um, my wife and I have a very different way of educating them. Like she is a godsend when it comes to this kind of stuff because she's, she's much more the kind of teacher. But the funny thing is, like, with my wife and I are both very different as well. You know, she's she's done like an accountancy background. She worked for, you know, her country's version of like IRS. So she's kind of come from that background. I'm kind of like, oh, I avoid those people. <laughs> um, <laughs> just try and stay off their radar. Her, so you can figure out a way to get. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although not not with South Africa. I mean, I think you'll end up paying through the nose there regardless, even if you know the system. Um but you know she's phenomenal with their with their education and and kind of getting them to to where they are and then where i really come in with this and it's it's the part that she wants me to play and it's the part that i enjoy playing the most is i'm kind of teaching them the entrepreneurial stuff like i'm yeah. i'm teaching them to be creative thinkers i'm teaching them to question things and think outside the box and you know Face fear and be confident and 100% and, and be, be don't be afraid to ask questions i mean the amount of people who don't this is the thing that always baffled me it's like when we talked about before about burning burning bridges that, that's one that really confuses me another one is not asking questions right like the people who just They'll nod and say yes, even though they think I haven't got a clue what's going on. But they're so embarrassed about, I don't want to be perceived to be dumb or stupid or like right. I wasn't listening. Whereas like the greatest things that have ever happened in my life was just being able to say to somebody, hey, how did you do that? Like, how did that work? Like, well, what? I don't really understand what you mean by that. Can you just rephrase it? And you learn so much more. And every day is a school day, right? Which is ironic because I got kicked out of school three times. So maybe that's not the greatest example, but... Um, I, I, I use the saying a lot that the day I stop learning is the day I stop earning. And I really stand by that because, you know, this is why I love doing the podcast because I get to learn something from every single person. I hope I give them something too. I really do. And I'm learning like this one golden nugget at least from each person. But if I do that three or four times a week, can you imagine how much I've grown as an individual by the end of that year? <laughs> no, I know. I know. And you know what? In With COVID and being isolated and all the other stuff, I, I get all of my interaction. Not all of it, but I get the vast majority of my interaction now this way. Yes. And so I'm constantly – and by the way, you do drop lots of nuggets. And I don't – can't Thank speak you. for everybody else, but I've learned a lot by listening to you. So Thank I just you. told you before we started that I've been – kind of stalking you now. You're my, yeah, you're you've become a fan. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I totally lost my track of thought. What were we talking about? Um, anyway, yeah, no, picking up those nuggets are a little more difficult now because, um, the interactions are like this and they're not mm. like it used to be. I, I miss, um, when I was in corporate America in the office, you know, it looks like the new norm is going to be virtual offices and all that good stuff. And I think you lose so much by doing that. And you may disagree and that's fine. But to me, being in front of the people that you, being in a room full of sales guys that are listening to you and feeding off of one another is way different than being on a Zoom call. Oh, of course. And so all of that stuff's going to get lost. 
all the nuggets that you miss, the stuff that you learn from all the people, even if it's at the water cooler yep. that you would normally miss in an office is going to get lost. And I, I just, I don't know. I kind of mourn that a little bit right now. Mm, I think that uh, my opinion is that there actually needs to be a, a hybrid model. So I actually came from a commercial real estate background. So my, my, I've been kind of looking at this from a physical location kind of perspective, like what's going to happen to these big business parks that, are, you know, employ thousands and thousands of people, right? That, you know, what's going to happen with them. And I have friends who invest in a, a number of those who are worried about, you know, people are already kind of handing back their keys and their lease saying, you know, we don't need it anymore. Uh, I actually think there needs to be a balance. I think we need to move to kind of like a, a hybrid working model where let's say you work from home three days of the week and two days of the week you're going for trainings and meetings and socializing with your colleagues and, and, and all that kind of good stuff because I think there has to be both. I really do. Um, I, I You can get golden nuggets digitally, but I completely agree with you. It's, it's very different. Um, you know what it is? I'll tell you this as well. And this is using a slightly bizarre scenario, but it, I did a talk um, the other week for a group of educators. So it's kind of university leaders, college leaders, high school, and some elementary school. And I was particularly pres presenting on um, digital presentation skills because I was now kind of saying, you're now having to deal with two things that you've never dealt with before. Number one is that you know most schools say put your phone away, <laughs> you know pay attention to what I'm doing. Now you've got no say over that because if right. your students are sat there playing on their phone or even watching you on their laptop, they're having pop-ups, you know they're playing games in the background, they're playing Fortnite, they're not even really listening to you. You can see their face, but you know they're not really paying attention. So now you're competing for their attention digitally. And I don't know if you've watched Social Dilemma, but given that there's like a uh, an extremely lucrative industry designed to capture your attention. That's a I've lot. I've seen to it twice with. once with my kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's an, I'm a isn't it amazing. About it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I, and you learn so much from it, but even if you just kind of look at the fact that this is billion dollar industry that is designed to capture your attention, you're going to have to factor that in when you're trying to educate people moving forward. The, the second thing that I pointed out, which is relevant to business as well, is the emotional intelligence. It's the inability to read the emotional intelligence, the facial expressions. Like, if, like you said with your sales team, if you're talking to them and everyone else is getting pumped up and motivated and that one person isn't, you're going to spot that that person isn't. And you're going to be able to have a conversation with them and see if, do they need some additional support? Are they just not feeling it today? Do they have something going on at home? All of that stuff that, that makes a great manager a great leader that's just become a million times harder digitally. Well, and, and another thing you have to understand, my background's in, in startup, right? I mean, mm. in, in startup, you don't, it's never nine to five. No. Right? And you really need to, especially when you're launching a product, when you're launching a product, you the sales guys need to overhear what the engineers are saying and what's going on in production. And like you can't keep everybody in the dark. It's the opposite when you're in startup. Everybody mm. needs to know what's going on for the most part. And you're going to miss that digitally. It can't be siloed. Kind of everybody has to be matrix. They all have to be plugged into each other. Yeah. I mean, if there's a way to digitally do that, then, then I'm on board. Mm. Like people that would just knock on my door – you know, I always keep the door closed because I otherwise people just walk. But the people that would knock on my door and come in and take 15 minutes that worked for me, mm -hmm. I would change the entire week from that 15 minute conversation. Like mm -hmm. I would hear something that's going on. I would realize that the sales team's disgruntled or worried about the blue instead of the black or whatever it is. And I could just 
converge on that and fix it before it would be a problem. Mm. And, and they could learn things that would help them sell. You know, I would, I would walk out of my office and I would tell somebody, Hey, the next time you talk to this guy about that, here's the best way to overcome that objection. And four people heard me say that. Right. Mm. So now they're off and running. They've got their own ideas. They've got to, you don't get that digitally and you need it with startup, especially when you're selling widgets, mm. when you're selling tech, you just, if it's all high tech, you know, maybe it's different, but mm. not when you're manufacturing something and there's a widget that you're going out and selling that can actually break. I just, I worry about that. I worry about, you know, what it, I don't worry, but I, I think people need to factor that in mm. business. Isn't all just business. Like it's different. Commercial real estate is different than, you know, making something that goes on. A, oh, of course. Factor, right. Yeah. It's just completely different customers. It's a completely different interaction. It's a completely different um, environment and culture inside the, the office it's all different. Mm. So I don't know. I worry about that. Now we're just talking about crap. I'm sorry. No, man. I'm, I, I'm no, no, you're absolutely, you're, listen, you're absolutely right. And, and I think people, people do need to be aware of this and uh, you know, and I think they do need to, to really kind of think about themselves because I think there's, there's a, I'm, I'm seeing a bit of a divide at the moment. I'm seeing the kind of, um, the, the, the nomadic types, um, you know, the Tim Ferriss four hour work week types right. versus the industrial revolution types, you know, the, I want to work from a beach. No, you got to work from an office and there doesn't appear to be very much in the middle, but we've kind of all been thrust into this environment where we work from home. And let's be honest, nobody's really happy because the nomadic people can't travel, <laughs> which is kind of why they had that nomadic lifestyle in the first place. Cause they're all stuck. And all the people that want to be in an office are finding the frustrations of how do you juggle educating your children at home, not being in the office? How do you juggle your meetings? How do, you, and it's it's a it's been a really fascinating time. But I think you 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 said you worried about it. I'm quite excited to see what comes from this because I yeah. think this thrusts us into a time when it has to evolve now. Here's the the thing that that drives me bananas um, is that you, of course all the people in cubicles want to stay at home, of course, right? But I promise, what they're not seeing is everything that we've talked about with networking, everything mm -hmm. that we've talked about advancement. I mean, the way I went from you know literally zero to hero in a ten year period of time is being around the right people and listening and hearing and catching nuggets. And I mean, when I walked in, when I walked into the first startup company that I went to, I didn't know what ROI meant. Okay. You think about that. This is 2006 hmm. and I didn't know what ROI meant. It was not a term that had ever been used. So that will put me where I was. Now I was pretending that I knew all these things, I would hear this stuff and I would go home and Google it, or I would talk to somebody more about it. And it, within a year's period of time, I was the director of North American sales and I knew everything. And I was talking like an MBA mm. from Stanford. So you're not going to get that when you're isolated in a silo to your point. And mm. that's the part that, that doesn't bother me because that doesn't necessarily affect me. But I think the people that are chomping at the bit to create a world where everything's digital and they can work from a beach and they can do all these things and they're separated, don't realize what they're giving up. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm. So that's what ends up happening. And ultimately what ends up happening is the customer experience suffers, yeah. the product suffers. And so I hear that you're excited. 
I'm excited to, to make sure that, you know, voices like mine are being, um, being gotten out there. Right. Because I want to sure. make sure that people think that through. And they I'm have not to. about a completely digital world. Not at oh, all. Listen, I don't want a completely digital world at all. I, I but no, I, 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 but like, I, I I'm, I, like I said, I, I, I think we're probably going to get closer to that hybrid model and that kind yeah. of excites me more because then, you know, being somebody who has had a lot of success through the, the the medium of podcasting, you know, I've been 10 years now podcasting, 10, 000, over 10,000 hours of podcasting. I've already seen the change in attitude towards it from when I first started to now. It's like everybody knows what a podcast is now. Like when right. I first used to invite guests onto a podcast, it was like I was inviting them for a police interrogation. It was like, how did you find me? What do you want to know? Why do you want to know these things? Who's going to be listening? And it's like, dude, I just want to have a conversation. You know, That's funny. I never would have thought about that. That's funny. Oh, it was completely different. Like people, no, everyone was really suspicious. Really well, I should imagine, especially if you're talking to vice presidents or, or CEOs, right? Because you're the media to them. Yeah. And what are you going to print? You know, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. like, what am I got to figure out how I phrase everything? But it's like, what questions do you want to ask? I was like, well, I kind of just want to have a conversation. And they're like, oh, this is like, send me a list of questions and I'll get it approved by PR. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, just come and have a conversation. I understand it. I understand it. That's that's the reason I don't thrive inside $2 billion publicly traded companies. I get, oh, they bore me. They just move so <laughs> slow. Like, yeah, like turning an oil tanker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Kyle, this has been amazing, and I'm sure the listeners have, have really taken so much away from this. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, thank and you so, as well. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're most welcome, brother. And, and thank you for sharing your story. I, I really appreciate it. So talk to me quickly. How can people find the book? How can people get involved? How can people talk to you as a speaker, as a coach? You know, where would you like them to come speak to you? Yeah, no, thanks. So, so let's talk about the book really quickly. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, or, uh, you know, it's, it's it, Barnes and Noble. And, and I was going to say, you can go to my website for a personalized version, but I can't necessarily, I think the shipping was probably going to be a little too tough for your, for your yeah. list. So I think Barnes and Noble and, and, uh, Amazon's your best bet. Um, okay. You can get a hold of me. My my website is kyledeanhouston.com. All of my handles on Facebook um, and uh, help me out. Pinterest or kyledeanhouston.com. Or you can email me simply at kyle at kyledeanhouston.com. And I answer all my emails. And I get a lot of them these days. So, um, And I am anxious. Anybody that does get the book, I am anxious to hear what the experience was like. I love that um, because that is the reason I wrote the book. Mm, I love that very much. Kyle, you've been an absolute gent. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for our listeners listening on Inspire Radio, welcome. And uh, obviously on the Billionaires in Boxes Network. Really hope you've in all enjoyed this and taken away so many golden nuggets. Um, we'll have to get Kyle back again, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, I second this. Anybody who reads the book, please let me know because I'd also be very interested in hearing your thoughts and your experience on this. Um, so until next time, take care of yourselves and we'll speak soon. This is Billionaires in Boxes, empowering 1 billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time. <laughs>